All right, reality check for me this morning. How many of you currently, and and I'm asking you to step out on a limb here and put your hand up if you're comfortable with it, how many of you currently feel spiritually dry or as though God is distant? If you're willing to, put your hand up nice and high. Spiritually dry or as though God is distant? Okay, this sermon's going to be helpful for five of you. (laughs) The rest of you, you can tune out. Go follow Eric downstairs. (laughs) No, I I would guess that more of you feel spiritually dry or that God is distant right now, but you don't want to admit that because who wants to admit that God seems distant? And and if you don't currently at the moment feel spiritually dry or as though God is distant, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've been a follower of God for any length of time at all, you've certainly been there where you feel spiritually dry or as though God is distant. How many of you have been there in your life? Put your hand up nice and high. All right, now it applies to most of us. And I would guess that more of you feel that way right now in the moment. And when you're in that place, when when you're just spiritually wrung out, when when you've been praying and it seems like God doesn't hear your prayers, like your prayers go up and they hit the ceiling and they come back down, and is God actually out there? God, do you actually care? God, are you actually leading me? How does this thing work? How do we engage God in that moment? When we feel spiritually dry or as though God is distant or maybe when we're just depressed with the circumstances of life. I know that there's a handful of people in this room who have diagnosed clinical depression and others who probably have depression but they haven't been diagnosed and other people who just walk through seasons of depression. And so the question this morning for us to wrestle with is how do we engage God When we're depressed, when we're disappointed with God has allowed or what God hasn't done for us, or when we're just spiritually dry and God seems distant, how do we engage God when we're in the valley? How do we walk through the dark night of the soul or the valley of the shadow of death? How do we do that? I'm glad you asked because Psalm 42 has the answers for us this morning. This is an incredible psalm. Get your eyes on it. If you don't have a Bible, open up the Pew Bible to page 469, and I want you to look at this passage with me this morning. Psalm 42 starts out, this, this heading here is important. It says, to the choir master, a miskill of the son of Korah. What does that mean? That means that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah. Korah was an Old Testament figure who actually came against Moses. He challenged Moses in the desert and God judged Korah and, and killed him for coming against God and God's appointed leader. But his, his, his offspring lived on and, and his sons became worship leaders among the people of God. And so they've written this song to the choir master, the person who leads worship among the gathered congregation of Israel. And the sons of Korah are these worship leaders. They're not the choir master. They're not the top dog. They're not Pastor Ben, but they're like the people who play with Pastor Ben. Yeah, Ben just gave me the shrug. Like, yeah, not, yeah. Somebody has to be the choir master. That's Ben here. But we also have sons and daughters of Korah who aid in music. And that's who the sons of Korah are. They, they play music. They lead the congregation in the worship of God musically. A maskil that is a, it's a truth statement. Or it's a communication about God written, put into song. 
And so what we are learning here, even in that heading, is that sometimes spiritual leaders feel spiritually dry and as though God is distant. Here, in, in, in ancient Israel, in the, the, the people of God, the Israelites, their worship leader feels dry, spiritually desperate, as though God is distant. So if a spiritual leader for the people of Israel feels this way, isn't that comforting for us to feel that way? That, that a figure in Scripture feels this way, and so therefore when we feel spiritually dry and though God is distant, we're not alone. And what, what is interesting to notice here in this passage is that this person did nothing specifically that we know of as far as committing some kind of sin or rebelling against God that made God feel distant. Now, all people are sinners by nature and choice, so of course this person has committed sin throughout their life, but a lot of the Psalms, when the psalmist talks about God feeling distant, there's some kind of sin that's committed and recorded, and so they work through a process of repentance to feel God again. But in this psalm, there's no recollection of a specific sin that has, God, has caused God to seem distant. It's just the reality of this person's life. I want God, I desire God, I want to follow Him, but He seems distant. My spiritual life is dry. And so this psalm gives us four steps to take when we're in the valley. Four very clear, four very helpful steps for us to take when we are spiritually dry, when we are down in the valley of the shadow of death, when we are desperate for God. So let's look at what they are. What do we do when we live our life maybe for a season or for an extended season of time in the valley. The psalm guides us. The first step to take when you're in the valley is to acknowledge your pain. It's not to minimize it. It's not to ignore it. It's not to over-spiritualize the pain in your life. It's to acknowledge it. Look at what the psalmist does here. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams... So my soul pants for you. Hear that desperation? As a deer, this isn't just a a deer who's hungry for a little drink. This is a deer who's about to die, who's desperate for water. The psalmist is saying, "I, I feel as though I'm on the brink of death. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before my God? You, you see what's going on here? This, this man feels as though God is not available to him. What do I do? I want you, I desire you, and I can't find you. Some of you have felt the pain that that creates. Why is my good, loving, heavenly Father distant? Why won't he show up? Why won't he speak to me? Why won't he answer my prayer? Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say continually to me, where is your God? The tears are, are giving testimony to the fact that God is distant. Also, in this context here, there's outsiders, non, people who don't believe in God, non-Israelites, who are throwing insults at this man, saying, where is your God? Why isn't he here? Why is he distant? And if he's so good, if he's so powerful, if he's sovereign, if he's loving... Why won't he meet you in your desperation? But notice here that the psalmist is acknowledging his pain. I fear that sometimes we we tend to downplay our pain 
or to ignore our pain or to minimize our pain or to, to over-spiritualize our pain. I, I think this psalm here is giving us a pathway that a first step to take is to just acknowledge it. Don't be afraid to, to bring God your frustration, bring God your doubts, bring God your fears, bring God your pain. Acknowledge it. He does this again in verse 5b. The end of verse 5, he says, My soul is cast down within me. He's acknowledging his pain. My soul is heavy. My soul is downcast. I am depressed. I am sad. He's acknowledging his pain. Verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is the imagery of, of the waves of the ocean or the sea just crashing over a person. They can't get up. My only connection to this really is a wave pool. But there, there's a lifeguard. There's really nothing to be afraid of. The waves crash over and over, and sometimes when you're a kid in a wave pool, it feels like it's out of control, but they turn the waves off. They make sure everyone's alive. There's a lifeguard there. But when I was in college, a friend of mine named Jared was up in Silver Bay swimming in the Baptism River where the Baptism River pours into Lake Superior. He was swimming with a group of friends and, and one of the girls was out swimming and the, the current grabbed her and started to pull her away. So my friend Jared went into the water and saved her but lost his own life. And, and, and that's the imagery here that the psalmist is getting at. Jared was swept away by this current, by this, by this water that he had no control over and it took Jared's life. In the same way, this is how the psalmist feels. Deep calls to deep. All the roars of the waterfalls, your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I'm, I'm helpless. I feel as though I'm being drugged away to death. God is distant. I am in deep despair and it feels as though my spiritual soul is withering and dying. Where are you, O oh God? And why are you allowing me to be crashed over by the waves? Why are you allowing the current to pull me out towards my death? And look at verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me continually, where is your God? Can you imagine this pain? So there's the tears that are testifying to this man that, that God is distant and then there's adversaries, there's, there's people who don't believe in Yahweh, the one true God, and probably even people in the community who are, who are taunting him, saying, where is your God? You probably did something wrong. You're, you're a sinner, and God is distant because of all of the wrong that you've done, or whatever it is. Where is your God? If this Yahweh God that you claim to worship, the one true God, is so powerful, why has he left you in this state of desperation? And, and we don't exactly know why. But we do see a step to take in the valleys to just acknowledge this pain. So, brothers and sisters, when you're feeling dry, when you're feeling desperate, when you're experiencing doubt, when you're worn out, acknowledge it. Admit the pain. Cry out to God. Admit it to one another. You don't have to over-spiritualize it. You don't have to act as though you have it all together. In fact, the Psalms shows us the first step to take is to simply acknowledge the pain. And a question I want to ask here, just pause for a moment on the four steps to take, and, and I want to engage the question of what causes pain? 
Well, there's a myriad of things, but Tim Keller, speaking of this passage, gives us three specific reasons that cause pain he sees in this passage, and I think they're brilliant and helpful, and I think in general, this causes, these things cause pain. So three common causes for pain or for spiritual distance, spiritual depression. The first one is a disruption of community. We see that here in verses 4 and the end of verses 5. The psalmist says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's remembering when he was in Jerusalem, the holy city of God, surrounded by God's people. He, he was attending the worship gathering. He was with God's people. He was in fellowship in community with God's people. But this isn't currently his state. This is something he remembers. This is something from the past. Currently, his state is seen at the end of verse 5. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. This is in the north. So this psalmist has been taken from the south, from Judah, from Jerusalem, the holy city of God, and he's been taken to the north. We don't know how he got to the northland, but he's away from his community. And so Tim Keller says one of the common causes for pain or spiritual disruption or spiritual depression is a disruption of community. And isn't that true? And some of you have recently moved. You're new to this area. Your community has been disrupted. Some of you recently left college where you had four, five, six, seven, depends on how studious you were, years of living in community with people, roommates and friends and doing life together. And then you graduated or you decided to throw in the towel because you were sick of paying the money and learning nothing and you got a job or you got married and you moved into an apartment or you bought a house and now you're living with this person who's still kind of a stranger. Or you're single or you're living with new roommates and you're trying to figure that out. Your community has been disrupted. And you feel as though God is distant. Why, oh God, why? Why can't it be the way it was three years ago when I had my community, when I had my friends, when all things were strong? And so consider if you're experiencing spiritual dryness right now, maybe you've been through a recent season of community being disrupted. Or, or some of our elderly here in our church who have been losing loved ones, family members, friends, church members. I've been pastoring here for four years and I've done about 12 funerals of people from this church. It's a disruption of community. If you're feeling weary and worn out and a little bit disappointed with God, a natural cause of that is your community may have recently been disrupted. Another cause of depression or spiritual dryness is disillusionment with the events of life. Look at verse 3, part B. It says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Things in life are happening that don't specifically or circumstantially testify to the goodness of God. Ever been there? You, you get a, a, a report of a health issue. It, how does this circumstance, how does, how does the diagnosis of cancer fit with the goodness of God? How did that tragic car accident testify to the goodness of God? 
How does me continually losing a job or not able to find a job that would provide for my family testify to the goodness of God? The circumstances of life don't always match how we assume or perceive God should work. And so there's this testimony that happens within us. Where is God? Where is God when things are like this? And there's a testimony of the world that will come at us. Where is your God? You say he's so good, why are you suffering? Where is your God? So a disillusionment with life events is also a a cause for spiritual dryness. And then lastly, Tim Keller points out that deprivation of the body is another cause in this text. There's more than just three, but in this text is disruption of community, disillusionment with life's events, and deprivation of the body. Again, look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. Well, if you're crying day and night, you're not sleeping. If your tears are your food, you're not eating. He says this is a sign of clinical depression. That that the body isn't functioning the way that the body ought to function. And so if you're spiritually dry, if God feels distant, it could be a result of physical circumstances going on in your life. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England 50 years ago, but was a doctor beforehand, on this passage, he writes this. He says, if you recognize that the physical may be partly responsible for the spiritual and make allowances for this, you'll be better able to deal with spiritual issues of life. See, see, we like to live in a culture where we divide the sacred and the secular, right? Right? There's the sacred duties, there's going to church, there's reading scripture, there's prayer, there's community group, there's devotions, there's singing worship songs, and then, and then there's secular stuff, going to work, eating my meals, brushing my teeth, driving my car, and we tend to divide those things. But the reality is life isn't divided. There isn't a sacred and secular. God is present in all that we do. And so deprivation of the body, if you're eating poorly, if you're drinking poorly, if you're not nourished, if you're not sleeping, this will aid in your spiritual health. Your physical health has a tie to your spiritual health. And, and so Dr. Lloyd-Jones here is saying, if you recognize that, that, that the state of your soul may be impacted by the health of your body, by the decisions you make with what you eat, what you drink, when you sleep, how much you sleep, it's going to affect it. And if you can recognize that and know that these things are all interconnected, you'll be better able to deal with the spiritual dryness of life. You'll be better able to engage it. If that means eating less ice cream, eat less ice cream. If that means eating less salt, eat less salt. If that means trying to get to bed earlier, not looking at your phone or a screen before bedtime, or or maybe you suffer with, you can't control your sleep. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried. Well, just know that's going to affect your spiritual life. So if you're feeling spiritually dry, beg and ask God for rest. See, the, the point is we can't be dogmatic about our spiritual dryness. We can't just say, you've sinned, so get better. We, we have to nuance these things and be holistic about it. Tim Keller says, you're emotional, so you need friends and community. You're physical, so you need sleep and food and drink. And you're spiritual, so you need truth. 
That's exactly what this psalm goes on to continue to communicate then. You are spiritual, so you need truth. So so don't be dualistic about this. We can't have the sacred-secular divide. We're emotional, we're physical, and we're spiritual. So acknowledge if you're in a spiritual dark night of the soul, if you're in a spiritual wasteland in dryness and doubt and disappointment, acknowledge that you're emotional and consider where you're at with your community. Maybe it's been disrupted. Maybe you need to press into community. Acknowledge the physical reality. Maybe you need to sleep. Maybe you need to eat better. Maybe you need to change your eating and drinking habits. But then also, don't forget, you're spiritual and you need truth. That's where the rest of the psalm takes us here this morning. You're spiritual and you need truth. There's three more things to do, three more steps to take in the valley. The next one is to remember God's faithfulness. So acknowledge your pain, understand what may have caused that pain, and then remember God's faithfulness. This is what the psalmist does. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng. That just means a crowd or a group. It means the assembly. How I would go with the the assembly and lead them in procession to the house of God. How I would lead the people of Israel to the temple to worship God. And we would do this with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. He's remembering the glory days, if you will. He's remembering God's faithfulness to his community. He's remembering how how he was involved in worship, and he's starting to feel those emotions again. I remember the good. When you're in the valley, you need to remember the peaks. You need to remember the mountaintops. You need to remember how God has been faithful to you over the years. And then verse 8, he says, The Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's remembering God's faithfulness over the years in his life. God did this, 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 God did this. Yes, my circumstances at the moment are filled with pain and questions and doubt and despair and God seems distant, but I remember when. I remember when. I remember when. And and he's probably recalling things like, the Israelites walking through the wilderness and God guiding them by a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And I just have this imagery of the psalmist here saying, I I remember hearing the stories of my ancestors when they were in the wilderness and how God led them by day in a cloud. That was his steadfast love. And by night, a, a, a pillar of fire would guide them and they would sing I remember. This is a part of the story that I am in. And so the second step to take in the valley is to remember God's faithfulness. And after we do that, there's there's another thing we have to deal with. We have to question our emotions. See, remembering God's faithfulness doesn't remove our emotional response to the situation. It's good, it's a step that we have to take, but just because we remembered what God has done doesn't mean that it's a quick fix and that our, emo- our emotions have now connected with the truth that's in our head or the memories that we have. Our emotions still lag behind oftentimes. And look at what the psalmist does here. He questions his emotions. Verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? See, he's preaching to himself. He's remembering God's faithfulness, and here he's questioning his his emotions. He's saying, why is my soul downcast? Why are you at turmoil within me? I know better. I know God is faithful. I know him. 
yet my soul is downcast. I'm depressed. I feel dry. God is distant, and I don't understand this. He does this again in verse 9, the second half. Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's saying, why am I mourning over my enemies ridiculing me and, dep- and, and, and oppressing me? Why am I depressed about this? Because I know what God has done against my enemies in the past. God is always for his people. God always fights for Israel. God always has our best interest in mind. And so why am I mourning? Because I'm experiencing oppression. But the emotion hasn't gone, right? He's preaching the truth to himself, but he's still wrestling with his emotions. And I think what we're to do here is to question the emotion. In verse 11a, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Which is the same response he had in verse 5. See, the reality is is that emotions can be helpful because they are a fruit of something going on in the root of what we believe. Emotions reveal things to us, and sometimes our emotions reveal to us wrong beliefs that we have. They reveal to us doubts. They reveal to us that we haven't been remembering God, that we haven't been holding God above all others. They reveal certain things to us. Sometimes our emotions, following our emotions, will lead us to make new discoveries, to uncover hidden things in our life, to, 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 to reveal our faulty thinking or reasoning or our longings. But the point is, we can't trust our emotions. Our emotions are helpful as they reveal fruit of a root in our life. But you don't trust the fruit. The fruit is a result of the root. And so you follow that emotion down to the root and you say, I'm doubting God because I really don't believe that he is good. I'm spiritually depressed. He feels distant. I'm not sleeping because I'm making bad life choices. I'm staying up too late. I'm eating bad food. I'm I'm drinking coffee at 9 p.m. and that's affecting me. So you you trace the fruit down to the root and you begin to identify what's really going on. And so, church, when you're depressed, when you're disappointed with God, when he seems distant or you seem dry, engage your emotions, but question them. Don't let your emotions be the truth that guides you. Let your emotions be something that reveals to you what's underneath the surface. And then step four is to command, to your, command your soul to hope in God, to sing to God, and to anticipate a future with God. And so this is an incredibly helpful step to go, to take, path, a path to take in the valley. Acknowledge your pain to God, remember God's faithfulness, wrestle with and question your emotions, but then ultimately, and, and here's what, what it's, hard to, it's hard to do when you're in a place of depression and spiritual dryness. But here's what the psalmist commands us to do or encourages us to do it and gives us an example of doing. It's to command your soul. So it's actually when, you, when you're in a spiritual funk, a dryness or a depression, it's to actually take hold of your soul and, and kind of slap it upside down and say, listen, listen, soul. Listen, emotions. Listen to what's true. You preach to yourself. This is what the psalmist does. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
He's acknowledging the pain. He's, he's remembering God's faithfulness. He's questioning his emotions. And now he grabs a hold of his soul. And he commands it. He says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He commands his soul. The command there, hope in God, the Hebrew word for hope there means to both wait and to trust. So so he's actually preaching to himself. He's reminding himself in his spiritual depression, in his funk, to wait for God. Circumstances of my life right now aren't what I want them to be, but I'm going to wait for God, and I'm going to trust God. Hope in God, it means to wait and to trust. I love the song that we sang this morning, the first song. I forget the title of it. I think it's I Will Wait For You. Here's the phrase. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. That's preaching to your soul. That's commanding your soul to hope in God. I will wait for you. I will wait for you until my soul is satisfied. That's why we gather, church. We gather to wait and to trust in God together, to command our soul. When we gather and we sing corporately, we are as a community commanding our soul to both wait for and trust in God, to hope in our God, because you can't do it alone. And we're also singing to God, which is another thing that the psalmist commands his soul to do. Hope in God, wait and trust for God. For I shall again praise him. This is a song written by a worship leader to be sung in the midst of a spiritual funk or depression. How do you deal with that? Well, you sing even if you don't feel like singing because it makes your soul come back to life. And and I love this in verse 5. He says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's not even saying right now in this moment. He's like, I'm commanding my soul to sing. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Here's a song that I've written to help guide my soul in my spiritual funk, in my depression, in the dark night of the soul, and someday I will sing again. Right now I don't even feel like singing, but you know that inner working deep within your soul when you know the truth and you don't feel like living out the truth? And here's what he's doing. After he's acknowledged it, after he's wrestled with his emotions, after he's remembered God's faithfulness, he's taking his soul in hand and he's saying, hope in God, sing to God, and then ultimately anticipate the future with God. Look forward. Consider where you're going. I love how he ends verse 5 and verse 11. Hope in God means wait for him and trust in him. For I shall sing praise to him again, sing to him, command your soul to sing. And he says, my salvation and my God. See how he takes possession of God there? Remember these taunts? Where is your God? In his own feeling in verse 9, why have you forsaken me? Where is my God? Where is my Father? Where is my King? Why am I dry? Why am I depressed? Why is he distant? But he takes a hold of him here and he says, my salvation and my God. He anticipates a future with God. He's still in the spiritual funk. And he's still wrestling with the emotion that where is God? And certainly he's internally thinking, will I ever experience him again? My, My soul is thirsty. Remember how it started. My soul pants for God. My soul is thirsty for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? I've been dragged away from my people. I'm not by the temple. I'm not with the Israelites. I'm not worshiping God. My tears are my food day and night. People are taunting me, saying, where is your God? Why has he abandoned you? Why has he let you go? And he's saying, 
but again I will praise him. For he is my salvation and he is my God. Though the circumstances of my life don't match up with the glory of God, he is my God and I will be with him forever. That's what it means to command your soul, church. This is how you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the dark night of the soul, spiritual dryness. And this is a, this is a nice, helpful list, right? I think this is really good. Do this. But it's not going to be an overnight fix. It's still a journey. You're still walking through the valley. And, and, and you may come up one of the ravines as you see the peak. You may come up a ravine only to find on the other side of that hill or ravine there's another dip down, right? It's a journey. Do this on your journey. But ultimately, I want to leave us this morning with here's a very helpful four-step way to walk through the valley that we see in Psalm 42. But I want to end with the good news this morning. The good news is that Jesus identifies with us and he overcomes for us. Jesus identifies with us and he overcomes for us. This psalmist, Psalm 42, you, you've experienced it, right? The dryness of the soul. Where is God? Why has he not come through? Why, not, why has he not met my prayers or answered them the way that I wished? Why does he seem distant? Why are others ridiculing me? I'm thirsty physically, spiritually, emotionally. Well, this is where Jesus identifies with us and he overcomes for us. On the cross, he was ridiculed. On the cross, he was thirsty. And he was forsaken by God so that you would never have to be. See, remember the psalmist acknowledging the people who say, where is your God? You remember Jesus on the cross? What people said to him? If you're God, save yourself. Surely, if you are the Messiah, call down the angels and God will save you. Messiah, God, what a joke. He can't even save himself from a Roman cross. He was ridiculed. You remember when he was on the cross? And, and, and he looked down at the Roman soldiers and he said, I thirst. Just like the psalmist. My soul thirsts for God. Well, Jesus had a physical thirst. He was on the cross. He was, he was dehydrated. He was thirsty. But I'm convinced his soul was beginning to feel this spiritual thirst and hunger for God because he knew that he was about to be separated from him as a result of our sin being placed on him. So Jesus identifies. He's been ridiculed. He's been thirsty physically and spiritually. And then ultimately, the psalmist says in Psalm 42, 9, Why have you forgotten me, O God? Surely you've said that before. God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you, why have you plugged your ears to me? Why do you not care? And when we feel that, Remember that Jesus actually experienced that. You remember what he said from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, church, so that you 
would never have to be. He identifies with us and he overcomes for us. And so church this morning, let's hope in him because he is our salvation. Let's pray. God, I'm going to pray it again. Not because you'd need our repetition to answer our prayer, but because we need repetition to remind us of what's true. So I ask that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning. Some on the mountaintop, some in the valley, some on the mundane path in between. Meet us where we're at, Lord Jesus, and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We thank you for identifying with us and overcoming for us, for being forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to be forsaken. May we find our life in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.